In 2018, the Pennsylvania Attorney General's Office released a 1,000-page report detailing decades of sexual assaults and cover-ups committed by Roman Catholic clergy. Like the reports and investigations that preceded it, it's fading from memory. Swears and Prayers is a conversation with Catholics about their relationship with the church and their struggles with faith in the face of this ongoing and unresolved crisis. These are everyday people and their real stories. Chris is in his 70s. He was born in New York City and moved to Charlottesville as a child. He returned to Charlottesville in the 1990s, and that's where he lives now. My experience, you know, as I've read, as I've read everything, you know, it's, it's just um, my experience. The only thing about my experience I think that's different from many is that, is that the, the faith of my mother, was, was, she was such a rock with it. It was so live in her life. That, that I, you know, I couldn't turn away from that. Hmm. It, it just was, so, so at 15, somewhere around 14, 15, I believe, I, I believe it was the fall of my, when I was 15, I, so I would have been, um, been in 10th grade. Um, you know, this new priest straight out of St. John Vianney Seminary in Richmond, you know, he shows up and, and it was just, you know, he he, um, he saw me after mass, and you know, he, you know, so he took me for a ride, and then just did, you know, it was. I remember him saying, "What's the most important part of your body?" And I said, "You know, thumb." And he put his hand in my crotch. He said, "No, that." God. You know, and I, you know, he took me for a ride. He said he wanted to see the house. I said, "It's a long way away." You know, we lived in Earliesville. Yeah. And. You know, I just, I, there's something weird about him, but I, I come from all boys. Yeah. I come from, you know, this sort of collegial locker room kind of, you know, where the, where gender was just, you know, there's a wide range of, of sort of activities and sort of feelings around gender when you're in a gender-segregated group. Yeah, so it's all boys, your whole family was boys, except for your mom, and then yeah. all boys school, except for when you went... I mean, you know, you actually didn't go to all boys school, but your dynamic in your house was very male. It was all male. Yeah. And so, and we were a touchy bunch. Yeah. You know, we hugged a lot, we wrestled, we, you know, so, you know, <laughs> being physical is just who we were, you know, so, so, whereas it might have with somebody else, you know, the warning bells might have gone off. You know, it, 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 I thought it was strange, but it never. I had no exposure to any, any, you know, homosexuality or anything. And so, you know, other than, hey, you're queer, you know, I mean, yeah. just, just the usual. So, you know, it, it, it really, it really affected me at this visceral level where it sort of inchoate, this is, this is really fucked up. I don't know, you know, I, I just didn't know what to do with it. And then, so I didn't think a whole lot of it. And then, and then, um, and I guess there was another time, there were two more times where once where I had to, you know, had to meet him for confirmation or something, I don't know what. And I was able to escape before he was able to touch me. And then, and then it was before Mass, at Incarnation, in the little nurse's closet, 
stole on everything, confession, then it was the full, you know. Yeah, and there were lined up kids outside. Lined up kids to go to confession. And this is down the hall, you know. <laughs> it was, you know, it was just so criminal, you just can't imagine. And it so happened that he, that there were a lot of boys that he played with before Mass at this particular, and so it was after that that he was, that somebody blew the whistle on him, told a non his non-Catholic father about it, his non-Catholic father got in touch with Father Chester Michael, who was the pastor, a revered name in this locally, you know, called... The, pa the pastor of Incarnation. Pastor, yeah, okay. what is, what was it in Holy Comforter? It was Holy Comforter, sorry. Yeah, yeah Incarnation. My father was on the parish council, and you know the emergency session, and then what's his name disappeared. Gone. Don't know what you know. Don't know where it was. He's going to get help. Was yeah. sort of the, the line. So I know this is like very personal. Um, was did they did you say anything to anyone, or was it this critical mass, or someone else? said it and you all were like yeah this all happened to me or did you just not even discuss it or was we it were, a friend of mine whose son died described it just perfectly he said our whole family you know the boat went over in the rapids and we came up and we were all in our own lifeboats and we never touched from there on mm -hmm. we went down the river we could see each other but never touched touch meaning you know yeah, yeah. came together discussed or anything Every now and then there'd be this, oh yeah, Father Paul, you know, it's just sort of, but it was, it was. Can we name him? Paul Rodriguez. Okay. I just want to get the name out there. He was published in the. the in the, the Richmond Diocese. Richmond Diocese. Okay. Um, he's been defrocked. Hmm. Well, I'll give, you, I'll give you the whole story because I mean, it's one of the reasons I, I think I'm healthy as I am. Right. Is that he, um, you know, I, I was. I got into a marriage that was not, you know, I, I was in love, but I just, uh, you know, the way a therapist described it is that somewhere along the lines you had a stack of pennies and somebody put a piece of sand in them. Mm. So the whole stack was trying to compensate. And so, you know, I had three careers, two marriages, moved 20 times, you know, all of the stuff that you hear. Yeah. You know, just this, you know, self-confidence and ability to, to to plan, you know, it's just, it's just one of the most devastating things you can imagine. And you, you know, you read about it. Well, yeah. <laughs> you know all about it. So, so um, in therapy, after a couple of years, in passing, I mentioned this Paul Rodriguez, and then just moved on, and the therapist said, wait, what? And she was, you know, she, I said, yeah, yeah, you know, so it's just one of these things, you know. It didn't even occur to me that that was a relevant thing to put in the conversation. I just mentioned it. Right. And she just jumped all over it. And then we talked some more, and, and you know, the more she talked, she said, um, would you like some help with this? Hmm. I said, yeah. So she called a priest friend of hers who was a Vietnam vet, a lawyer, who became a priest at age 30. He's a real good guy. And he, 
he he told me, so well, you know, what would you like? And I said, well, I'd, I, I guess I'd like to talk to him. Hmm. I knew he loved the priesthood. I, well, he gone. I had no idea where he was. He right. said, okay, I'll find him. Really? So he somehow, you know, went into the basement of the Diocese of Richmond. And Can I just back up just, I'm interested, like, why did you want to talk to him? Yeah, I'm not quite sure. Okay. I just, I just, I just wanted I just had a sense that I needed, you know, that, I, that, that for him to be this sort of ephemeral presence, yeah. this malevolent presence hanging around in my heart and my mind was not doing me any good. And that probably to talk to him, I don't know what would happen, but it would probably be better to be able to deal with it. So he found him, um, found an address in New Mexico. Interesting that's in New Mexico. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wrote him a letter. I think I have copies of all this still. I wrote him a letter and said, you know, essentially, I want to talk to you. I want to hear your story. What's going on? You know, what happened? I want, want to talk to you. And I, do, I have no, you know, I, I don't mean any harm to you. You know, what I want, and I think that what you owe me is just talk to me. Yeah. And so, you know, he ignored that, ignored the second letter, and then one evening, like eight o'clock in the evening, I got a phone call, and there he was. Talked to him for forty-five minutes. Really? And um, I, I reiterated that I don't, you know, I have, I feel no animus towards you. I don't think, you know, I certainly am. Yes, I do. Yeah, I was, I was, I was, I was angry, angry. Why wouldn't you? I don't know. I'm just you talk. Well, it wasn't um, because I still hadn't quite made the, you know, made the causal connection between, you know, the, the I don't know issues in right. my life and you know this thing that happened in my past. You know, it's still it's sort of this still a kind of intellectual construct, a legal issue, a Catholic, a religious, you know. But, you know, everything I learned, it starts, you know, it would go back and I'd start with two and two, you know, I'd be able to, to construct it. It was like putting a zipper together as, as I was way ahead of it. <clears throat> and anyway, he, he um, about a year later, that was in 1993, 92 or 93. And um, somebody, and I was... Uh, so I was, I was uh, 44 at the time. Um, I heard, oh no, no, I was visiting Charlottesville with you know, my wife at the time, two kids. I was visiting Charlottesville and there on the front page of the paper was some priest, this guy, Paul Rodriguez, somebody had blown the whistle on him. He'd been arrested and brought to Charlottesville. This was after you talked to him? This was after. This was like two years after I talked to him. Okay. And I hadn't done anything. You know, I told him, I, yeah. I've got, you know, I, I don't, I, I have, all I want to do is to talk to you because I think that this will give me some sort of closure. 
so up until this point, had he had law enforcement been, been involved at all? No. So it was just within the Catholic Church. Just within the church. You're going to be laicized. We're going to you're going to go to treatment in New Mexico at one of these places, and then whatever. Okay. I think that he went to somewhere in Wisconsin for a year, and then he left the priesthood. So this, so that would have been in like '65, and here it was 1990. Wow. So it was a long time he was laicized. Sure. And then he. Um, so somebody else, I don't know who it was, I suspect I know who it was, somehow find, also found him. Right. Got it, went to the police, they brought him to Charlottesville, and there in the Daily Progress, this story, I'd come home for the weekend. Where were you living at the time? Baltimore. Okay. So you come home and you see, you actually see it in the paper? There it is. Oh There's a picture, you know, I think not a picture, but a front page story about a Catholic priest who's been arrested for, for um, yeah. So, um, but I remember very distinctly saying, "Look at this guy," you know, and and I pointed to the article. My father was here, and my wife was over there in the kitchen. And he said, "This guy's man. He's getting a lawyer." He said he didn't do anything. I didn't say anything. You know, my father knew. Yeah. But um, and he said, "Of course he gets a lawyer." Yeah. And my wife went ballistic. When you say gets a lawyer, do gets. we mean from, is he just getting a regular old defense lawyer or are we talking about like like a church lawyer? I don't know. Okay, that's I'm just I'm just curious. That's yeah, question. that's what we're recording, so yeah. No, that's, so you, so your wife like freaked out. She was freaked out yeah. and she, she, I don't know how much, I think she knew about this, but not much, but she also, she, you know, she being much more attuned to the undercurrent you know, this sort of that distance between the heart and the mind, you know. She, when you say you think you know, like, did you talk to her about what you'd gone through? or I think so. Oh, okay. But I never made much, um, much of it. Okay. And I still hadn't connected, you know, who I was, my behavior, the stuff. I hadn't connected that person and the problems, you know, the, the, the sexual abuse problems. I hadn't I hadn't made the connection. She did. Okay. She knew it. She knew it. At how how I was trying trying to get the kids through their first communion. Yeah. It wasn't agony. It was fucking agony. Yeah. I just couldn't. You know. And finally, um, just to roll back, uh, my daughter Margot had her first communion with my uncle Bradley, the mm-hmm. Jesuit priest, and after that. I sat them down in the living room, and she was seven. Mm-hmm. Nick was nine, maybe. And I was just just barely holding it together. And I said, "Kids, I've had a really hard time with the Catholic Church. It's been really, um, and I can no longer force you to become part of this because I'm so conflicted with it." I hope someday that I can find some peace with it, and at that time, maybe I can revisit it with you. But from this day forward, I'm not going to require you to do anything. This is to a seven and a nine. And this was the day of their first first holy communion. It was what? This was like when they received the first holy communion. When my daughter had her first communion. Okay, your daughter and your son had gone through it, and you're like, and you're like, I'm done. Yeah. And you're you guys are not obligated anymore either, and they're really little. Yeah. Yeah. No more. Okay. And so you know. Sure. You're like, okay. Whatever, great, yeah. Dad. Hot dog. Oh so, God. 
So he, a priest, this was, I don't know, 1990, 92, or something like that. And so he was in jail here in Charlottesville for a pretrial jail for, I don't know, six months, a year, you know, a good while. And then he went to trial. And the I got a call, and I didn't think much or didn't hear much about it, and I got a call uh, from the local, the county commonwealth attorney, Jimmy Kambloss. And he said, I know this is um, sensitive stuff for you. Um, you know about this Paul Rodriguez, he's coming, he's, he's gonna go on trial in a few days. Um, I need to ask you some questions about it. He said, first of all, because you were 15 under the Virginia statute, you were considered an adult. Can you explain that to me? Yeah, yeah you explain it to me. I... Because, I, because I was 15, it was considered an adult, so it was consensual or whatever. It was not criminal because I was 15, not 14. Oh my God. Oh my God, is right. So he said, so we can't, we can't make you party to the suit and we can't because of the statute of limitations we can't I can't, that word it's like oh my god we can't even let you testify and i said but he said and then i then i went into it i guess he'd asked me what's your investor so i told him the whole story and i've got notes i've got contemporary yeah. notes of the yeah. phone conversation and everything and he said, "Well, you, we can't, you know, we can't, you can't testify. However, if he trips and if he screws up during the trial, we can use that as an opening to get you in to corroborate or whatever, and we can get your testimony in front of the, the judge or the jury or whatever it was. And so, would you be willing to sit outside the courtroom?" I said, "Yeah, I'll do that. Okay." Let me just ask you another question. Um, when you spoke to Paul on the phone, did you discuss at length like the actual things that happened, or was it just not even? No, it was not, it, no, it was it, no, because I mean that, that that's a uh, I mean it sounds silly, but that's a detail that really didn't matter at that time. Fair at enough. this point, yeah. you know, abuse is abuse, and mm -hmm. it doesn't matter whether it's penetration or whatever. It's, it, it, it no, I mean, just did he admit that something happened? Oh God, yeah. Okay, so that's what yes, I was trying yes, to get at. Yes. I didn't and, and you know, and I, and I have to say, it was really helpful to hear his side because yeah. he said, you know, I went into the seminary. I went from an all boys grade school into an all boys high school into the seminary at, at when I was fourteen. Mm -hmm. I knew nothing but boys until you know, all the way until I was until I graduated was ordained, and so here I am you know, in, in this sort of collegial atmosphere of my whole life, much like me growing up with boys mm -hmm. and playing football and running track and doing all that stuff. And so, and then then my first job was in, to be in a parish. I have never been so lonely in my entire life. Mm -hmm. He said it was like I just was dropped into the desert. I was untouchable. You know, that he, he couldn't, he, he was living with the other priests, mm -hmm. but, you know, there's no relationship that they had. Yeah. And he wasn't, he couldn't, you know, for whatever reason, he couldn't reach out to parishioners. He had no friends. There was nothing. He said he was just profoundly lonely. And so, you know, he said, what I did was just god-awful. It was wrong. I was, you know, are you sorry? You know, God, I'm so sorry. Please hmm. forgive me. 
you know, he said, it was just crazy. It was just craziness. I knew that I was going to get caught. I, you know, he said, I, I, was, I could not do it and I couldn't do it. And it was, it was horrible for me. And, you know, I have to say that after that conversation, as much as I loathe the guy, it was, he's human, you know, and I, I, could, I could accept that. So it was helpful. The reason, the only reason why I asked that was because of what had happened uh, in the during the whole trial situation. So now you're in a position where you might have to give testimony, and, and I had notes. Yes, yeah, so I could read from my notes. Exactly. I mean, the guy was so he, um, you know, he was caught. So of course he got a lawyer, which is my father's attitude. Yeah. And if I could go back even farther, sure. When he was caught. You know, so mass is at 9 o'clock, it's over at 10, the guy's on his way to Michigan or, or Wisconsin by noon at the emergency parish council meeting. My father comes home and he pulls me aside. Very rare. My father's not, you know. Hold on. Can we just talk about that timeline? You said he said mass. Wait, there's, he was there in the parish and then, like, left to go on the plane to Wisconsin, like, after, like, saying mass? He was, he was jerked out of there. And sent away within hours of being of it coming out that of, people of being were, caught right right oh but they didn't it's not like they went <laughs> pulled him out and sent him to and called the cops they yeah. put him on a plane to another state yeah. okay just and the other state was to was to be was to um, you know get his mind right it sure was, sure was psychological problems yes. and so on so it's going to go to, to go on retreat or something yeah. like yeah, this that, yeah yeah. Okay. So what I'll never forget, and the piece that, that, that's the most profound and frankly still hurts, is that my father said, my father's response was, um, well, I just want you to know that it's, that it's the man, not the office. Okay. It was, it was not to hug me and say, you're not a queer. You know, oh, that must have been awful. No, it was defend the church. Yeah. It was defend the church, which was my father's Catholicism. The church is sacrosanct. It's in his DNA. It's inviolable. Even something like this does not reflect badly on the church. It reflects on the man who did it that. It was a the man. There are flawed people in the church. Independent. The yeah, it has nothing to do with the church at all. Nothing to do with the church. Okay. He, you know, we never talked about it, and it was sort of, okay, okay. That was the last we talked about it for 30 years with my father until the 90s when, the 90s. when this came back and then um, so let me go back to the trial so here I was ready to drive to Charlottesville that night and I got a call at 10 o'clock at night from the Commonwealth attorney and he said thank you he pled guilty oh. he heard that you were coming he heard that you would be waiting there for him to slip up and that if he did slip up, we'd have him. He heard that, so he pled guilty. Wow. He's like the only one. Wow. Yeah. So he how went did to that, jail. How did that feel for you? Well, it was, you know, the two things that helped me tremendously to, to sort of at least encapsulate this and park it. Yeah, yeah. You know, until it came back was that I was responsible for sending him to jail. Yeah. I was... I confronted him. If I'd been there in person, I don't know what would have happened. But I did confront him. I got him to say he was sorry. And I was able to, you know, get 
what closure was appropriate at that time. But the, you know, the underlining piece of sand that was in that stack of pennies didn't go away. And so, you know, wrestled academically, I wrestled everywhere in my, in my entire life since then. And, you know, much of it I can, because I now know so much more about the effects of these things, I, it's, I know what it, what it's like. I mean, I know that, that I can point to things, oh yeah, that's, that, that happens to a lot of people who have had this in their background. So. No, but I, I'm just astounded. So he did, he went to jail, went to prison, did he, and he served how long? I don't know. I lost track. Well, of that's him. good. Yeah, I lost track of him after yeah. that, and, and frankly, I was through with him. That's good. And then I remember my parents coming up to Baltimore, and, us, and we went for a long walk when this was still raw. This was 93. And um, I just remember, you know, bless them, my mother saying, saying, she said, when this came down, I said to your father, I said, Jim, I don't know what to do with this. This is yours. Hmm. And so, you know, Dad's response was to say, it's not the man, it's the office. And I said, you know, that really wasn't helpful, Dad. Thanks a lot, but didn't help very much. And he's, you know, this sort of silent World War II type, you know, he, yeah, I'm sorry. No, he, he, there's no, no closure yeah. with him. And, but that, you know, that's, we don't get where we want in life. No. Um, I didn't get that from him. And I think one of my brothers, in fact, I know, I've since talked to him recently, another brother was involved with that at a, at a younger age. And he was, uh, and it's, he's had a lot of the same troubles as I. Just to be clear, he was molested by a priest? Same guy. Same guy. Same priest. Oh my God. And, um, he and I, he and I have talked about it. I won't say his name. No, I'm sorry. He and I talked about it, and and he's he realizes it. And he's now, he's finally gotten some therapy. Mid fifties, yeah, late fifties. He's getting, he's getting help. I saw him last week, and he's, you know, he's just so much more, less tense, so much more open. He's smiling, you know, and that's not the guy that I. Have known as I've done. He's gotten more and more uh, tense. I guess I don't know what the word would be. Yeah. So, but then you know, then my Catholic history. So that that's. So that was '93, and I was struggling to be, you know, to be the Catholic parent because my wife was not. So she was okay. So you married you married a non-Catholic, and your kids were. They had their sacraments. Yes. And then, then, then yeah. you're like, okay, I'm like, we're done with this. We're done. We're done at age five and or age seven and nine. Okay. And then, you know, I'd sporadically try and, you know, you know, I'd see another parish and I'd go and, you know, but I just I couldn't, I couldn't sustain going. And um, by this time, I was, I was seeing the link between the abuse and my love-hate relationship with the church right. um, again because you know it was the faith of my mother and, and <clears throat> it was such a powerful um, life raft for her you know so 
and then uh, in 94, 94, it was, you know, my anger and, and my, you know, I was just not a really pleasant guy. But, but, and so we, the marriage just couldn't survive. Okay. We had to be moved. You know, I had money problems. I mean, just all of the stuff that contributes to. So we, we just didn't have enough, strong enough bond for it to survive. Both these revelations and my therapy around it and trying to figure out a work life that worked. And she was an artist. Mm -hmm. My wife was an artist. And so, you know, she was sometimes, you know, she, she wasn't. It was, it was there were really hard times. Yeah. So we were divorced in 94. And then um, we moved from this large suburban house in Baltimore, sort of like a Park Street house, mm -hmm. fixed up. We moved from there to downtown Baltimore into the, <coughs> the old Baltimore townhouses. Yeah. You know, they're just beautiful places, like brownstones. I know what you're talking about, that almost like, like Federal Hill type of... Um, it was, yeah, so I mean, yeah, it was in Mount Washington, which is across the Jones Falls from Roland Park. You know, it's, but, um, no, I'm sorry, that was, that was in Mount Washington. We moved to Bolton Hill, okay. which is near Federal Hill. Okay. Downtown townhouses. And um, so when we split up, Nick and I, son and I lived on the first two floors, and she and Margo lived on the top two floors. And so we did that for four years. Okay. And, and it worked. Um, was it four years? No, it couldn't have been. Yeah, was it about, maybe it was three, three and a half years while they were in high school. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I was spiraling. I'm just, I was still spiraling. And I found, I, I don't want to sound too dramatic, but it was, couldn't sleep, you know, two o'clock in the morning, I was walking the streets, you know, I wasn't suicidal, but I was, you know, I was not a happy camper. Right. And here's, they come around the corner, and here's this white marble church, and mass is at 8.30 the next morning. What the fuck, you know? So I showed up at 8.30, and they're here in this beautiful, just beautiful little church is a nun standing behind the priest at the altar. She was running the show. This nun was the pastor. The church the church was too small, didn't have a school, didn't have enough there there for, at that time even to have a pastor, a priest assigned to it. So uh, this nun and two or three of her compatriots stepped up. It, was, it made too much money for the cardinal to close it. Huh. But it wasn't big enough to assign right. to it. <laughs> so there was this, this nun, and I was just, you know, and I could feel the vibe as soon as I walked into the place. And, and it was, you know, it, I almost burst into tears. Mm -hmm. It was just, it was a profound moment to see a nun, to see a woman behind the altar. So... Afterwards, it's so funny how like, like the church will make these little exceptions, like when they need to. Exactly. And you'll be like, "Hey, that actually happened." And, and people are like, "No, no, no, that doesn't happen." No, no, no. I went to that. Yeah, that's and interesting. It, yeah. And it works. So I went up to her afterwards and I said, "What's the deal? <laughs> Why are you here? <laughs> what are you doing?" And she, and she said, "Well, you know, she told me the story about the you know the logistics and why, um, you know, why it's working that way and then." Her main job is to be 
pastor, but her main functional job was to make sure that there's a priest here next Sunday. Hmm. And so she had, you know, five of them on speed dial, and, you know, a different priest would show up. There were two or three who were regulars, but, you know, a priest would show up, and he was clearly subservient. Interesting. To, because... <laughs> Because when a priest didn't show up, and it only happened two or three times in the five or six years I was there, when the priest didn't show up, we had our own communion service. Right. Because we'd have hosts, you know, and that were stuffed away so that we could actually have some service. So often the homily was given by a woman. All of the prayers of the faithful were done, were basically handed out to whoever would be willing to do it. Mm-hmm. There were 12 people involved in any given mass. It was, it was entirely, it was as though, metaphorically as though, Sister Jane, you know, you said to her, tell me about this church, and she'd hold up a mirror. Huh. This church is you. And the difference in that parish was absolutely profound. It was profound. To have a church that was run by a nun, first of all, with a nun with a woman's sensibilities. Now, there's no hierarchy. There's no hierarchy at all. Right. And the um, and this even liturgically, I was on the liturgy committee. Mm-hmm. You know, we would we would choreograph the mass. Wow. The, the singing, you know, the, the person who led the singing was the only paid staff. And she led the singing from up front. You know, she'd go through a song or two before Mass, and everybody would sing. No choir. You know, it was, a, it, was, it was a community that came together to be together and to worship a common faith. And this was in the Archdiocese of Baltimore? In the Archdiocese of Baltimore. Okay. Of all places. Of all places. Wow. It's called Corpus Christi is the name of the parish. Right across the street from the Maryland Art Institute. Are they still there? <laughs> I think there are some there. Okay. So I. So somehow you were drawn back in. I was drawn back in, and it was it was a it was a seminal moment because you know what I realized was the spiritual vacuum. You know, I'm just that's just who I am. So I've got to have you know your body, mind, and spirit, and. Yeah, I think that's um, something that we talk about. I've talked to a lot of people about is about that. There's if you're like a like a faithful Catholic, and I mean someone who's gotten something from it. There's a lot of people who walk away and are like, yeah, like your brother, one of your brothers. You're like, whatever, I'm not not interested. Like, yeah. um, I have a sibling like that too. Just who cares? Like, it just, means nothing to me. Like, let's move on. Um, but for someone who has gotten something out of it or has observed, like you, you brought up your mother and like observing her faith. And like living, like it, yeah. sustaining her and like your family, um, it's very hard to to because there is a, it's a vacuum. Like, what else is filling it? Like, drugs? <laughs> like, I mean, I don't yeah. really know. Other faiths, other shopping. Like, I don't know because if that's such a huge thing, it will actually <coughs> suck other things into it. You know what I'm saying? It's not like it's a, a great, neutral position. It's a saying? great way to put it. You know that we we are body, mind, and spirit, and and. You know, the way I've explained it to the kids has always been, you know, it, there, there are three legs to a stool and they need to be, need equal attention. 
And if you're going to pay attention only to the body, and if you're going to do nothing but look to make money, you better make a hell of a lot of money. <laughs> because because if one leg of that stem, or if you're going to be spiritual, you better be a, you know, and, and leave everything else aside. You better be a Thomas Merton. Right. Or, yeah. You know, that it has to be so strong that it can overcome the lack of the other things. And you know, to for me, I just I, that leg of the stool was just teetering. I mean, I wasn't there. Yeah. And then I realized that that you know after coming back to the church after it's like 28, 30 years, um, I knew that the vacuum was filling, hmm. and that this and that it was filling because of because of this wonderful sort of trade between you know as liturgy community community liturgy liturgy community you know that, that there was you know Jesus is, is uh, you know fully human and fully divine you know we a community a Catholic community is fully human and there's also you know there's the liturgy that's that is you know ephemeral transcendent or whatever but you have to have both and it's also your community that you found at Corpus Christi was asking something of you it wasn't something like a passive, like, I'm just going to show up and do my stuff and walk out the door. It's yeah. like, she held the mirror up to you. It's like, come on, <laughs> like, That's pick it. some songs, like, get up there That's and it. do your thing, yeah. That's it. That's exactly it. It required something of me, which is so ironic because my father said that what he loved about Catholicism was it required something of him. Hmm. And in his case, it was, it was the dogma. You know, was, yeah. you go to Mass every Sunday. You don't eat meat on Fridays, for God's sakes, you know. But in this case, you know, the, the, this new paradigm that I was in, the church, you know, the church was me. The church was us. And, and it was uh, just, you know, it just filled an incredible need. And um, the well, last just, let me just, I'm sorry, I mean, I, I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I will fine. just, I think if someone's listening to this, I think a lot of people would say, but the church did so much harm to you. Like, why did you go back? Like, I think a lot of people might be thinking, you almost were gone. Like, you had 28 years away. Like, why? Like, it's such a source of, like, awfulness. I can, I can tell you why. Please. I can tell you exactly why. Because I heard Thich Nhat Hanh speak once. Hmm. And he was speaking to a bunch of men. You know, back, there's a men's movement back in the 90s. Late 80s and 90s. Robert Bly and all those guys. Robert yeah. Bly, you got yes. you know Beating the drums. Yes, yes. <laughs> but, um, but Thich Nhat Hanh was speaking to this group of men and he, he was talking about spiritual things and he said, I don't know how big a point he made of it, but boy did it ring true, he said, you can't, you cannot leap into another faith until you've made peace with your own. And you know, I realized that was a, that was just the light bulb went off. Is that I either have to get shed of Catholicism, or I need to to unwind where I was when I was fifteen, and then see if I can build on that. And it turned out when I did that, I realized that um, again, you know, this is where where I realized how strong how my mother lived her faith and how central it was to her life. And you know, I, I just couldn't not pay attention to that. I think and that a lot of times when the other people I've spoken to have, have kind of had similar like sentiments, even though they might not have not gone through what you've gone through, but this idea of like 
I either have to purge it from me yeah. or so and people are like there's a couple of options it's like if I'm having this these I'm walking away but I'm not walking away I don't know what I'm doing I either have to reckon with it purge it from me or accept that I'm going to quit and stay yeah you know and yeah. some people are like I could just show up and just not I'm like tune out like that's an option um, how true is that to you that means you have all the trappings around you, but it's not really if he's speaking to you, or it's like reckon with it, pick out something that you can work with, like you said, unwinding the things. Yeah. Or you purge it, and but you have to deal with it. It's not, You've got to deal if with it, it meant anything to you at all, you have to deal with it, because you can't just walk away. Can't walk. You, you cannot walk away from it. And uh, you know, my brothers, um, all but two of them have walked away, mm -hmm. and, and you know, good riddance. Yeah. And, um, but for me, the sense of um, the sense of a group of people coming together to witness, um, intentionally witness the love of God in their midst, to be that and reflect it, and be it and reflect it, that was um, that that plus the underpinnings of my mother saying, essentially from the grave, saying, "This is worth it," hmm. you know. That she wasn't in the grave at that time, but so so I came back and um, and then for for business reasons moved to actually moved back to Charlottesville in two thousand um, because my daughter had graduated from high school, so no longer stuck in Baltimore, stuck so to speak, <laughs> in Baltimore, and the business had we were I was manufacturing children's furniture, but. I made. Um, I had a company called the Children's Furniture Company, oh, and we were shipping stuff all over the world—not the world, but all over the country. And and all we were doing by that time was assembling parts that were made elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So and then finishing them to order. So it was a portable business by that time. And my parents turned eighty, so I wanted to, to be with them, wanted to experience the last twenty years of their life. So I moved back to Charlottesville in 2000 and um, joined St. Thomas Yeah. at that time and brought with me all of the enthusiasms I had for community. <laughs> Where it was... <laughs> what was Gosh. I thinking? Oh, oh, man. So I was... So Father... Um, why am I blanking on his name? Solomon, um, Gregory Solomon, um, I think it's Greg. Mm -hmm. um, it was, we had been there, met Debbie, Debbie right. and I got married in 2002, and shortly thereafter, 2003, 2004, I think, you know, the shit hit the fan again. Mm -hmm. 2002, I moved to Boston. Uh, you're right. Yeah. That's right. And so it was, and Father Solomon was, um, you know, he was he was outraged. Well, that's good. Oh, absolutely. This, this guy doesn't was, always happen. So. This guy was really he was you know. And he, so was he was speaking, your pastor at St. Thomas. He was a pastor okay. at St. Thomas, and he was he was outraged, and he was speaking about it repeatedly from the, from the pulpit, and you know, did it once too much and got jerked out of there. Okay. These are Dominicans. Yes, they're Dominicans. Yeah. But and 
Unisei got jerked out of there, where did they send him? What happened? They sent him. I mean, he, they sent him because he was he was uh, speaking truth to power, mm-hmm. and power didn't like it. So they sent him to St. Stephen's in Washington D.C., which is a basically an old folks' home, <laughs> where he where he ministered, and I don't know where he is now. Yeah. But we lost touch with him. We stayed with him actually when we went up for uh, Obama's inauguration. <laughs> That's awesome. In 2009. That's great. But I became, you know, after he left, I, I ran for and became president even of the parish council. Really? And my anger, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so the first thing I did was to talk the parish council and the priest just <laughs> into a survey Let's survey this parish. Mm-hmm. Let's ask ourselves who we are. What do we want? And talk about a turd in the punch bowl. <laughs> this guy, the new guy, Brian, something or other, he was all of 39 or 40 years old. And I just remember what my, my come to Jesus moment, so to speak, or maybe the devil, <laughs> was to ask for a meeting, met him in his office and said, Essentially, um, you know, Jesus said um, the two greatest commandments are, you know, basically follow with your whole heart, your whole soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. And I saw them as being interchangeable. Love your neighbor as yourself is is my organizing principle, Father. Mm-hmm. And that's how I want to see our community. And he said, no, my job is to get you and your other parishioners to heaven. Wow. (laughs) And I went, what? And he went on and on about it. I said, well, that's it. And he dropped the mic. Dropped the mic and I'm out of (laughs) here. He just walked out. So, and then then that's when St. Thomas became what it is now. Oh, my God. And at that point, we, we, Debbie and I, you know, we met, we were introduced at St. Thomas, so... It was, uh, um, it was a good, good It mess. served its purpose. <laughs> it served its purpose, yes, yeah. But, but uh, still, you know, even now, you know, on Sunday mornings, we, um, you know, we, uh, based on Michael Suarez's recommendation, we play uh, Edward Elgar and some, you know, some, um, we just listen to classical music for 10 or 15 minutes, and then we talk about who we are spiritually. You know, we have our own kind of... Yeah, she mentioned that, like, praying together. We pray together. Like, not in a, we're going to say prayers together, but that we will reflect and, like, talk about. Right. It's a time. It's very interesting, yeah. And it's really, um, it's important, and it's profound, and, you know, it's very helpful. Yeah. And then also, during this time, I have to add, the other thing that kept me, that helped at Corpus Christi was that um, the, the nun Sister Jane said um, a lot of people found it healthy, helpful to join a small group you know, to talk about these things um, here's, here's Henry Tom's number call him up and Henry Tom's taught engineering at, um, at Johns Hopkins and so we had a group on Sunday morning. I attended that two or three times. It was, you know, it was, it was good, but not, I was not, wasn't quite ready for that. What do you mean? 
Oh, it was just a little bit too close, touchy feely. You know, oh, okay. I didn't want to. You know, and there are also morons in it. <laughs> you know, there, there were also people stupid. That sort of Jesus jelly beans kind. Of, they were talking the party line, and I just couldn't quite do that. No Jesus jelly beans for you. But I realized that that a small group. There's I realized there's something here. Right. Wait. This this is there's something here. So then I started to look around, and then ended up with this group. A pair of uh, nun and a priest. He had he had left the priesthood. Um, actually, two couples who were nuns and priests. One had been laicized voluntarily. Mm -hmm. The other had was still a priest. I don't know how that works, but he was still a priest and still great friends. Mm -hmm. um, uh, two lesbians who weren't a couple, okay. but one who was a scholar, a PhD scholar at the Institute for Jewish and Christian Studies. Just unbelievable intellect. You know, all she did all day long was think about Jews and Christians. Right, right. Um, she's one of the most interesting. She's Sicilian. And um, there are one or two others in this group, but, um, you know, somehow she said, somehow she invited me to At any rate, but it turned out that that group had been meeting for 15 years. No. Oh. <laughs> you know, so they were kind enough to you know, let me sit in for a yeah. little bit, and then, it, then it became, I became part of that. But that, too, the combination of liturgy and then sort of Wednesday night group to just talk about things of faith. Was uh, it's what brought me back yeah. to the church usually. Swears and Prayers podcast is brought to you by me, Jen Mediano, and producer Erica Gregory at Scout Creative Agency in Charlottesville.